This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press about how faith is changing culture in unexpected ways. I'm Nancy Wong Yoon. I'm a sociologist, a pop culture expert, and a professor at Biola University. New eyes that look at the world in new ways. New eyes make contact blue, green, and gray. New eyes I realized I never knew when you realize feelings you trapped inside of you. New eyes that see the respect you earn. I am here with my very good friend, G. Hi, G. Salutations. G, today I am going to talk to Mike Cosper. He is a mm. writer and podcaster for Christians in a post-Christian world. That is his mm. bio. Mm. <laughs> he is the director of podcasting for Christianity Today, where he produced and hosted the very, very, very popular The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. The drama. <laughs> yes, it was so popular that it ranked at one point the fourth most listened to podcast in the United States, which is just wow, because it's all about this, you know, this church. And and I, I guess as a, you know, as a Christian, I'm surprised and not surprised that it would be so popular. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get to talk like to him about it. It's also workplace drama and uh, whodunit and, you know. Yes, it's, it's like... Um, uh, it's very much a uh, whodunit true crime format, yeah. which is interesting. It's like, I think there was all this like, dun, 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 who killed Mars <laughs> Hill? Um, and you so, need the law and order like, because <laughs> <laughs> Mars Hill, I don't know if people have heard of it. I actually personally have never heard of the church, uh, nor um, Mark Driscoll. So, but listening to the podcast, um, it feels very familiar. And even if you just visited, I think a mega church uh, a few times, mm-hmm. the the podcast is very re- it resonates completely with. Yeah. I think the. the the appeal and the lure of. Um, big mega churches and celebrity pastors and also yes the charisma and the the edginess i think of a lot of Mm. pastors that may be very conservative in their ideology but very kind of uh casual and fun and punk rock in the music and in the way they dress and in the way they talk and i think um the way the community is kind of you know um allowed to kind of flourish or get oppressed i mean it's just an interesting kind of close look and uh a very kind of docu-series on you know what what a christian church looks like but also hearing from the the pained um, survivors of a church that has disintegrated. So yeah, so Mike and I get, I mean it's funny because I think Mike and my um, conversation is really supposed to be about that, but then it really really talked about race because that is what I love to talk about on this podcast yeah. is is race and racism and how and how people of faith and actually since Mike Cosper is my one and only white male guest and also talking about this church that is very toxic we got to really have i think a very fruitful conversation about the state of white evangelicalism so when i say white christianity i mean that the dominant form of evangelicalism this is in churches in seminaries it's shaped by white conservative culture so for example social science survey shows that white evangelicals are more likely to discount structural racism, the effects of slavery and historical forms of oppression as shaping contemporary inequality. Uh, This is more so than whites that aren't religious as well as people of color. There is also a deep belief um, within white Christianity in meritocracy and a kind of militant discounting of any kind of privilege that comes with being white. And so this looks like in churches manifest in how white pastors, they will preach reconciliation, but they rarely repent of racist and segregationist past and present. So all these things are manifestations of white evangelicalism. And this type of thinking pervades um, the society and pervades how we talk about and think about Christianity in its present form. Oh, Very deep. Can't wait to listen. (laughs) 
So, Mike, I love the true crimey format of the podcast with the dun-dun-dun, who killed Mars Hill? (laughs) So, for our listeners who don't know, Mars Hill wasn't a person, but was one of the largest evangelical churches founded in 1996 by by, um, Mark Driscoll in Seattle, Washington. And Mars Hill grew to 15 branches in five states with nearly, I mean, somewhere between, I guess, 10 to 14, 15,000 visitors on Sundays. But after accusations of bullying, lying, mismanaging church funds, and even plagiarism, Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill in 2014. So that's kind of the the general background. So my first question for you, Mike, is why would one of the top Christian magazines in the United States do a podcast about the demise of a church and its founder? Yeah, I, it's a great question. And and it's one that's been funny because I think there's, I think there's some assumptions um, from some people who've been skeptical or critical of the show um, to say, oh, the CT is trying to like sort of whitewash its image, right? Because we were you know, we profiled Mark and and we've done reviews of his books and that sort of thing back when he was in his ministry. Um, but the truth is it, what we're observing, I mean, my interest in the show was uh, multi-layered. Um, the biggest issue being that this is not a, you know, unique story, unfortunately. Um, now there are elements of the story that are unique. There are unique elements to, to Mark's personality for sure. And, and to the church itself. But when you look at the heart of the issues of sort of character, leadership, um, the structure of leadership, the structures that form around a leader like this, they're just happening over and over and over again. And so I'm, you know, I'm grateful that CT gave me the time and the space and the opportunity to really dig in and just sort of excavate this particular system, which I think is indicative of what's happening in a lot of places. Yeah, and I was really taken by the fact that I think in the maybe the first episode or second, there was this quote or this uh, pointing out that um, John MacArthur said that people like Mark Driscoll actually prepared the way for a personality like Trump's. Mm-hmm. And of course, my 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 bells all went off. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? That because I, you know, I, I'm not familiar with personalities like Mark Driscoll. I think if I went to a church where he preached, I would just walk out like immediately. I wouldn't stay. Sure. Um, but the fact that someone like him is so popular and that he was, I guess, the the reason why and you can tell me more about this, the reason why he uh, Mark, John MacArthur, who's very, very conservative, said that he that Mark Driscoll was kind of a um, a predecessor or maybe even a grooming for, you know, the the church for someone like Trump is that he was very crass, right? He was, he, he yelled a lot. I think in the, if you listen to the podcast, he's like just yelling at the top of his lungs at people all the time. I mean, he sounds very, um, yeah, he sounds a lot like Trump in the sense of kind of, um, you know, very not typically kind of your peaceful, sweet pastor, but a very brash yeah. and rude and sometimes, you know, mean and um, and toxic person. I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I think, I think I don't know. I, I guess I would say I think MacArthur was probably overstating his case on Mark's relevance to evangelicalism <laughs> as a whole at the time. All right. Um, and I think there's a deep irony, in, and we mentioned this on the show, but there's a deep irony in the fact that MacArthur said that in 20, you know, 15 or 16 and then in 2020 was, you know, sort of a one of the louder evangelical voices supporting Trump. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I think it I think on that front we should ask the bigger question of well, in the end, <laughs> what what role did a person like MacArthur play in paving that ground as well? And I think yeah. I think what I would say where the commonality was between MacArthur and Mark is where you might even see some of that, which is Mm. they are combative. They are culture warriors in one form or another, right? Um, They are out there beating their chests, stomping their feet, and they want to make sure that the world knows that they're right and that they won the argument. Um, And so I think it's that projection of like strength that projection of I'm going to win at all costs mm-hmm. that kind of comes through that certainly is something that I think um, Donald Trump tapped into with, you know, this this narrative of where, you know, his constituency being victims and they're tired of losing and he's going to help them and they're going to win. You know, once once they throw their vote his way, they'll start winning again. Um, I see that parallel for sure. 
Yeah, this um, I think in one of the episodes, I think there was a scholar who pointed out that the kind of Cold War was when like this kind of started where we have to be this toxic masculinity and this kind of idea of uh, a war, right? That we are fighting a war, um, that Christians have this war. It's, it's, it reminds me of kind of the Crusades. It's like a modern crusade where we feel people feel like um, that there are whatever elements it is that's, you know, that's infringing upon their truth. Um, and, and they like to kind of meld that truth into gospel when it's not necessarily so. Right. And this, um, mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of when, um, when Mark Driscoll, I think accused his administrative assistant of being a heretic because she dared mm -hmm. criticize him. It's right. this, yeah, it's this us against them and anybody who's against me, I'm going to fight them because it, this is a war. And that, that, that makes so much sense to me in terms of what we're seeing around the country, right? Like the kind of anti-CRT, anti-banning um, books in the name of morality, in the name of Christianity. And yeah, definitely listening to this, may it helped me, I think, make sense because I think a lot of non-Christians are thinking, why are these people who profess to have faith um, are attacking what they perceive are people on the margins, right? And so mm -hmm. this, and so this confusion of morality, and and yet we see that it's actually the very morality is is just it's it's different, right? I mean, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I think I think I know what you're saying. I, I guess the the way I've been thinking about this a lot recently is, um, you know, there there seems to be an ethic in a lot of evangelical circles right now. And it, and it seems to be part of what's, what I think is being worked out in the debates and in the, in the politics of the moment, um, of sort of what, what, well, it's a constant debate is what does faithful Christian witness look like? Right. Um, and in some ways I just feel like we all need to go back and reread James Davis and Hunter's, you know, to, to change the world. Um, because the, part of the whole point of his book is that, you know, the, the, the whole idea of world changing Christianity, this sort of grandiose vision of if we get our, you know, our evangelistic plans right and our, we build the right institutions and we do the right things, you know, we're going to sort of uh, inaugurate a new realm of Christendom um, as opposed to this idea, which I think is much more biblical, much more evident historically, which is that uh, uh, faithful, faithful witness is faithful presence, that Christian witness is always kind of a, the, the witness of a remnant inside of a inside of society um and that remnant being a source for an immense amount of good and and being life-giving and re restorative um but it's a it's a narrative that i think is really weird for our our current moment because for for white evangelicals in particular um they're sort of flourishing in their positions of power and influence in society has been so uh, so married to their understanding of themselves as evangelical Christians mm -hmm. that as those dynamics change, as the politics change, as the demographics change and all of that, there, th there's an assumption that all Christian witnesses, you know, is disappearing, um, with it. Um, so, so yeah, I think in terms of how it's, how it connects to some of these, these bigger questions of, um, presence, like, you know, tactics, the way we communicate, the way we connect, um, the, there's a reactivity that gathers around someone like Driscoll or gathers around someone like Trump and says, you know, sees the strength, you know, the projected strength and all of that and thinks that this is what we need in order to preserve um, what we understand to be the true faith. Um, and in fact, we're you know, we're being had at one level or another um, when we buy into that narrative. Yeah. So then that true faith is is wrapped up in racial identity, even though I think um, because it's not named so there is this um, very kind of staunch um, defense of like I've been told that I should identify as Christian first and not as Asian and um or not, not as Asian, but just like Asian second, right? <laughs> or it's not as important as my Christian identity. And, and it's hard for me to convince the people that say that to me that, well, I think all Christian identities intersecting with some sort of racial identity in this country. And just because you don't say white, I'm a white Christian, that that 
is right now, I think, the understanding, at least when they're saying that to me, that that's the understanding that they're coming from. And and then and so because of that, then then whiteness becomes this defense mm-hmm. of of quote unquote truth. Right. And and that, you know, I think that. Yes, I think people understand that, but I think that, or everybody understands that that that's you know that's an issue that we're we're dealing with right now. But, but I think that, I think what I'm trying to get at is that there's a morality to that, right? That I think that mm-hmm. there's such a staunch defense and such a moral kind of rage behind that, then that's that fuels this kind of. Um, you know, anti anti CRT, anti which is critical race theory, anti you know any kind of books that really actually any right now any history that deals with racism, um, the history, the actual history of the United States, and so having all that, um, it feels like I think it's like it's like it's almost like our moral centers are now different, right? Mm-hmm. Not just politics, but the moral centers are sometimes even oppositional, even within the Christian community, but certainly between kind of Christians and non-Christians. Um, so yeah, it's troubling. It's troubling. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what this this podcast really um, helps to, I think, um, pull back the curtains on why this is so. And mm-hmm. I think that's really effective. Um, and perhaps that's why I'm imagining there's a lot of audiences that aren't Christian that are listening to it, right? Have you gotten mm-hmm. a lot of feedback from non-Christians about the podcast? Yeah, I have. I, I'd love to say something about what you just said, because I think mm-hmm. it's really, I think it's really important. Um, so much to me, I, you know, and I'm certainly not the first person to, who think to say this, but like so much to me about the way um, people, both as individuals and as groups, sort of understand themselves in culture is, is through like the narrative, right? The stories that they're telling themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I saw some data the other day um, that Ryan Burge had written about, about sort of the um, uh, evangelical populations in the United States. And it was so interesting because what he shows in, in the, the research is that the actual number of evangelicals is staying pretty flat. Um, but the number of white evangelicals is declining. And yeah. that's a that's a factor of birth rate and people leaving the church. It's actually a factor as much as birth rate as anything, which I was pretty blown away by that as well. And, um, and so as I've thought about that, and he talks about it a bit in his article, part of what I think white evangelicals are feeling is this decline narrative. Like mm-hmm. we're shrinking, we're losing something, you know, and I don't think they would name it an issue of power. I think they would name it an issue of sort of influence. And there's, there is this divide. There is this difficulty in the church that non-white evangelicals don't vote the same. They don't think the same about all kinds of issues. They don't think about education in the same ways. They don't think about, um, about lots of stuff. And so many of those sort of cultural issues that really should, should live in the the realm of sort of Christian liberty, freedom of conscience, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They've been so narrowly defined for a middle and upper middle class white evangelical demographic um, that when the conversation starts to shift, it's it, there's a lot of fear and a lot of reactivity. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why a lot of those, you know, when they're when they're confronted at, with it as a racial narrative, their first reaction is always, well, I'm not racist, you know, because they're not thinking in terms of race in this, the story because their story that they've bought into and, and that they own and experience most closely is decline. Um, and I think it's really hard. I, I, I've thought a lot about it since, you know, since then of how do you, how do you help to tell a story in a way that is a positive story that, that we we're seeing, you know, a, a more diverse and a more beautiful church. And are there ways that we can have more open hands to, to seeing, you know, Seeing the holding the essentials together, and you know that classic cliches about essentials and non-essentials and all that. But to your question, you know, yeah, I, I've had a lot of non-Christians reach out, and people who've left the church or struggled and and or, or been on a deconstruction process reach out. And uh, you know, I think you know, like like you said at the beginning, there's a lot of surprise that you know why why would an evangelical institution like CT spend time on this and and some gratitude for it. Um, and then I think there's just a lot of people at various stages of faith and lost faith, um, uh, who've reached, who've reached out and said, you know, thanks for telling our story like this. I, I lived this. Thank you for, for sharing it with, uh, with others. Um, and meaning they've lived it in other contexts. And 
again, that's back to why we think it's just so important to have invested in it. Yeah, it feels like um, like a confessional, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that, oh gosh, you know, living through kind of um, these years of Trump and post-Trump and, and seeing kind of, I think a lot of, yes, a lot of Christians and ex-evangelicals and people who are questioning what is going on with kind of the, the culture of evangelical Christianity and being able to have this podcast to say, hey, you know, yeah, this is this this is what the shape of how these problems look like lived out in the, you know, in the specific story of Mars mm -hmm. Hill. Um, and and like and to actually say it, you know, in terms of like the toxic masculinity and misogyny. I mean, I just thought, wow, like why what? It's like all like I think a lot of your your um you know the segments were actually all like publicly available right these are mm -hmm. from sermons like he had no problems that you know that he's he's saying things like you know um, blaming blaming wives for you know the sins of their husbands that they have to be what totally sexually available otherwise their husbands are going to sin I mean it sounds like something that's like from like 1940s or something yeah. wow. um, and yet I, I was shocked that you know it was such a successful church and there were women you know there I just thought like what kind of people and of course you know they were victimized and and, you know, but what, what kind of people would even go here? Like, these mm -hmm. are young people, right? That's, there were, it was a young, and it was it's in Seattle, Washington, so I wouldn't imagine fair, somewhat diverse. Like, what were the people like that were at Marseille? Are they, are they representative mm -hmm. of, you know, evangelical Christians? And, and like you said, the, the changing demographics as well. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to some of the, the sort of sexuality teaching um, at Mars Hill, there are ways in which... Mark's an outlier because he's so, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, vulgar in, in the sense that he just, he's unrestrained in the pulpit in terms of what he would say. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a famous example of a sermon he gave in, in Scott, it's the Scottish Song of Songs ser sermon. And if you, if you read like sort of old blogs on Mark, like when that, when that sermon found its way online, it was one of the more controversial moments in the, the history of the church. And, and we use some clips from it. And just the the degree of almost pornographic detail he goes into as a way of trying to interpret Song of Solomon, it's just, it's kind of stunning. But <clears throat> it's not that stunning when you look at the way a lot of Christian writing on sexuality has been since the 1970s. Mm. Um, there's lots of Christian books on on married, sort of the, the married versions of the joy of sex and whatnot. Um, and... And so I think in the name of sex positivity, a lot of Christians were trying to, a lot of Christians have embraced it over the years. Um, and, and I think what, what ends up being difficult is when an attempt at sex positivity gets married to an understanding of male sexuality that, you know, like at Mars Hill, it was very transactional. Men need this. Women need a provider. Men need sex. You know, so this is how it works. This is the exchange. Um and it was never that overt, like that's an overstatement, but I mean, that was definitely the message that many received. Um, so it, it, it connected with people at a certain level. Um, I think there were a lot of folks who were Christians who came to the church and who were just glad someone was talking about sex at all because um, mm -hmm. they felt like they'd come from contexts where it was, it was faux pas. Um, and I think in a way that's, that's similar, I, I think Caitlin Beatty has used the language of like a, a, a sexual prosperity gospel. Where it's like if you get the you know if you do these things right you know the Lord will bless your sex life, um, and and so I think there's a lot of people who were who were drawn in by that pursuit, men and women. Um, so it it as far as the broader demographics of the church, it was it was predominantly white by far, mm. um, and uh, they they made efforts at you know from time to time to to have a more diverse church and they planted in a more diverse neighborhood at one hurt at one point, but the plant just didn't work. I mean, Mark's preaching just didn't translate to a predominantly black community at all. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to nail down exactly who even amongst sort of that white population who was there though, because there were a lot of converts. Um, there were a lot of Christians who'd left the church and kind of came back because the culture of Mars Hill felt like home for them. 
Um, and then as the church got bigger and bigger, just a lot of evangelicals who were attracted to kind of the, the big, you know, the phenomenon of the megachurch in the first place um, found their way there. The world keeps changing at a dizzying pace. How can you stay current and discover biblical truths to meet today's challenges? Introducing Seminary Now, a new online, on-demand streaming service where you can learn from gifted teachers like Esau McCauley. When we look at the injustice in the world, we're going to address the perennial issue of slavery. And we're going to talk about the ways in which the Bible was misused to justify the oppression of black and brown people. Brenda Salter McNeil. The world as God intended is a multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic, and multinational place. James Chong. What is the gospel? Is it just about where you go when you die? The world keeps changing. Don't stop learning. Join Seminary Now at seminarynow.com and get 25% off with the discount code DISRUPTORS25. That's DISRUPTORS25. Yeah, it's interesting because I think about my own church life. I've definitely gone to churches where I disagreed with sermons or disagreed, mm -hmm. or I knew I, I disagreed with leaders on, on aspects that... Um, that I just decided that wasn't as important as perhaps the community or as mm -hmm. as other issues. Um, and that's actually, I think that's kind of confusing to people who live in kind of a cancel culture, cancel culture on both sides, right? Where it's like, if you don't agree with me on all things, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be here. But I feel like people who have been churched, it's almost impossible to find a community where you agree with mm -hmm. everything that the pastor agrees with, right? And that's not that's not necessarily a bad or good thing. I'm just saying that that, that helps mm -hmm. me to process why so, you know people would go to a church where I was, a, another shocker was that oh, the elders all had to have stay-at-home wives. The elders <laughs> had to be men and they all had to have stay-at-home wives. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I've myself been to like marriage, weekend marriage things where they separate the, the husband and the wives. And when I was in the women's portion, they told us that the, the speaker said that, you know, you shouldn't work. And I'm sorry mm. if your husband makes you work because that's sinful. <laughs> and I remember sitting there and looking around the room like, is anyone else hearing this? <laughs> mm. Mm. And no one said anything, you know, no one said anything. And how we're just kind of we just are quiet about it because, again, it's under the umbrella, under the, the guise of this is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so if you say anything, then you are kind of like you're saying you're not a Christian, even if mm -hmm. you're just disagreeing with one portion. So there is this all or nothing mentality um, and that you just learn to kind of negate parts of yourself or be silent about parts of yourself in order to kind of fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as the church, as as the life of the church went on, I think you probably found fewer and fewer people who could compartmentalize the way you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Certainly people who were there early when Mark, you know, was 27, 28, 29 years old and was just sort of their loudmouthed guy who was in the crew, right? Um, it, it's, it's easy when that's your context to hear him say something that's totally over the top. You know, one of the comments, one of the descriptions we had for him at one point was, um, you know, Archie Bunker in an affliction t-shirt, right? Like <laughs> when you have the relational context to hear him say something that's kind of ridiculous, you, you roll your eyes and you go, eh, not only do I not necessarily believe that, I know you don't really believe that. That's, that's for the reaction. Mm. Um, but then again, like the success of the church, the size of the church, the scale, the distance he got from people that he made from people, I think there comes a point where you know, number one, there's not context for people to know when to roll their eyes and when when he's being serious. But I also think for Mark, probably it reaches a point where that line between truth and fiction in his own head starts to disappear um, mm. because he's surrounded by people who don't have a vested interest in keeping him connected to reality anymore. Um, and I think that's really hard. Um, but... Yeah, you said you you know mm -hmm. you stay because of community. That's the thing we heard over and over and over again. Like, why did you stay? It's like, I'm, my kids were born here. I was married here. Like, my best friends are here. Like, mm -hmm. when I got sick and was in the hospital, these were the people that brought me meals and food and everything else. And it's like, sure, the, I've got scars from this, that, and the other along the way, but um, I didn't know where else I was going to go. Before we continue this conversation, I want to let our listeners know about two things. First, 
Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper is available for 30% off plus free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DISRUPT at ivypress.com. Secondly, hosting the Disruptors podcast has been the most unexpected blessing for me. As I interviewed cultural disruptors about how they integrate faith with their creative justice and identity work, I began to understand how my identity as a Christian is shaped and fortified by who I am as an Asian American woman, scholar, and activist. I hope that you have enjoyed season three as much as I have, and your feedback matters. It can shape the future of the show. So as we wrap up season three, our team wants to get to know you better. We're asking our listeners to take a quick survey so that we can better understand who you are, which episodes you enjoy the most, and what conversations you're interested in moving forward. Plus, when you take the survey, you'll be entered to be one of five lucky winners to win a $25 Amazon gift card. Take the survey today at ivpress.com backslash disruptors. That's I-V-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash disruptors. And thanks for listening to the Disruptors podcast. And it's so painful to leave a church and start over. Like I've Mm -hmm. done that a few times in my life and it's so hard, especially as you get older, it's really, really hard to find a community because if you're with people your age, they've been friends in in that community for a really long time and to be the new person, it's really hard, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I get that. The, you know, the idea of, of staying. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, everything that you just said about kind of um, this, <laughs> the, the not being part of reality because you're, you're, you're with a group of people that maybe just um, support all of, your, um, all of your thinking that is actually maybe wrong. And, and, and I feel like that is, that, that's the problem, right? That especially what we talked about earlier where there's a fear of kind of difference encroaching in, in, mm-hmm. in the minds of you know, some evangelical, white evangelical Christians, that then, you know, then that it's reproduced, right? This idea that, okay, like anything that talks about racism is anti-gospel, like these kind of lies that that get reproduced because you're only surrounding yourself with other people who think the same thing rather than having a true dialogue and and this mistrust and this fear of the other I feel like is so endemic in our current climate and I don't know what do you think is a solution to all of this yeah I'm, I'm not sure I, I certainly don't have a solution I think one of the I think one of the causes that's interesting or one of the things to to that I'm interested in thinking more about and and it's just the way that like the sort of the blessing of the internet. I mean, this is a perfect example of it, right? Like, like we're going to have this conversation. It's going to go online and, and anybody's going to, you know, have access to it. Who wants to, um, being able to get your message out to whoever wanted to access it, you know, 25 years ago, even, um, was incredibly difficult. You know, your, your mm. best bet was like a mailing list, right? <laughs> um, because then, you know, you know, especially you go back a little further, you go back 40, 45 years ago, there's four TV networks. And so there's right. the gatekeepers to get to that, to communicate, were so difficult. On the flip side, for the networks themselves, their goal is to get to as broad an audience as possible. Um, and so they're not, in, they're not incentivized to be flamethrowing and to play to the most sort of polarized minorities in uh in my, by minorities, I mean sort of viewpoint minorities in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, as communication gets broader and broader, there's more networks, there's more access, we can podcast, we, there's 500 cable news channels now and each one crazier than the next one in <laughs> one degree to another. Um, it, it's like the incentives are all go towards saying something inflammatory yeah. um, so that you can, so that you, you know, so that you get noticed, so that you get heard. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think the solution is like, you know, some kind of authoritarian shutdown of all the, all the stuff. And, you know, I don't even know what that would look like, but I do think it's a significant contributor to the problem. Um, we don't have responsible actors in media and communications on secular world, Christian world, whatever, um, um, because the incentives are all for being flamethrowers and, mm-hmm. and, you know, inciting the 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 most devout minority um, in the crowd. Yeah, and I think the I don't know. I think this also there's also this 
inclination towards I don't want to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and exactly. if it's com- if it's comfortable, then it's probably truth. If it's uncomfortable, right. then it's a lie. Right? This kind mm-hmm. of very narrow thinking. Um, I mean, there's literally laws that are you know being bills being proposed to eliminate any texts that make white people feel t- uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a like when I'm reading that, like I feel like I live in discomfort all the time. <laughs> <laughs> As a Christian of color, I am never comfortable, <laughs> and so I'm used to it. Right. I'm used to I'm used to being in um, ambivalence and, you know, in intention. And and yet, you know, I keep the faith and I just think like, wow, you know, how can we have that kind of um, attitude? How can we cultivate that kind of attitude right throughout the church where being uncomfortable is part of um, actually, I mean, if, if we're just sharing the gospel anyway, that should be uncomfortable because, you mm-hmm. know, right now. And I think that uh, the problem is, I think, I don't know, I wonder if evangelicalism has moved away from actually sharing, right, sharing with people that are unlike yourself, more isolating and being with other people who think just like you. Right. Mm-hmm. That that's that that's where the culture has has shifted. And that is obviously not biblical. And and so I think that, yeah, that that's part of the issue with, you know, with kind of a bubble mentality. And um, and then at the same time, though, just think about Marcel, that it's it was about growth. Right. It was about reaching a lot. And I think that even listening to um, the, you know, Mark Driscoll's kind of message, like he wanted to be in the pulpit in order to spread the word. That was mm-hmm. his goal. Right. But then it was so narrow and he would yell at people who didn't believe the same thing he did it's like it's like creating um i don't know i guess creating clones of yourself right it's like you want to spread the word but you only want people who are going to believe exactly what you believe so Mm -hmm. i don't know that just was not how i came to faith i mean I, i didn't grow up in a christian family so that's not that would not have drawn me to you know to the faith right yeah that will you know, and it's a principle that evangelicals adopted from um, the name is slipping my mind, but there was a missiologist at, at Fuller Seminary for a long time who his whole his whole concept was, you know, this homogeneous unit principle that, mm. you know, missionaries in the field, you, you need to understand the language and the dialect and the local culture and all of that, which, of course, all makes sense. And then he, you know, he comes back to the States and says, well, this should shape the way we do church planting. And so if you're planting in a, in a white suburb, you know, of Chicago, like learn to speak that language, be as precise and, and, and particular to that space and those people and all of that. And so I think, I think that plays in a lot to, you know, why, why churches struggle, like why do, why, why do churches struggle so much to, to thrive as, as multi-ethnic communities? Uh, I think a big part of it is because so much of their strategy um, and so much of the training around church planting and, and church growth has been designed to say, you know, like, I mean, the classic example is like Saddleback Sam for, for, for Saddleback. I mean, they designed a character that was the target for all of the church's growth. And he was an upper middle class white guy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so they built all the ministries around let's serve him. Right? It's like, mm. well, now, now ask yourself, why would ethnic minorities have a hard time connecting to life at Saddleback. Um, maybe it's because they're not Saddleback Sam. And I, I think the sad part is, you know, and and I, you know, I, I don't say this as, as a critique of Rick in particular because it was just in the in the water. It was what all the churches were doing at the time. Um, but I think the the sad the sad thing is that it it pervaded in such a way that I I, I it just seems like right now church is just really lack the imagination to go, well, how could it look different? You know, um, to the point where you see, you know, I've, I've seen in recent years, people arguing, yeah, the multi-ethnic thing just doesn't work. You can't do it. So don't try. Hmm. Um, which is just surprising to me. Um, um, and, and on some levels I understand cause when, when I hear, like I've read that from, um, from some black Christians who are essentially saying, I've come home to the black church because it's a safe space for me and I'm tired of fighting. You know, I'm tired of fighting for my dignity or for my point of view and all of that. And I, I completely understand that. Um, I think that's an indictment on white evangelicalism that, that our, you know, our, our standard mode of operation drives people away from us that they feel like they can't be home with us. 
Yeah. So like sociological studies of multi-ethnic churches is that the people of color start to assimilate into the white culture and not the other way around, right? So mm-hmm. it's like if you're going to be a person of color in, and, and thrive and survive in a white evangelical, um, you know, led church or multi-ethnic that's still led by white uh, white men mostly, that then you will have to assimilate into that culture, right? And, and so I can see how if you don't want to assimilate into that culture, then there's really no space for you because mm-hmm. the leadership tends to not... Um, invite right the the people that are on the margins and to actually have a truly multicultural leadership that that doesn't happen as much and also a lot of the a lot of the pastors of color are also you know coming out of seminaries that also teach them to assimilate into a certain culture right into the, mm-hmm. the dominant culture and so that that makes it very hard i think to have true again, true dialogue and true mutual understanding and expansion of what church life and church culture can look like. Um, I was talking to, so I'm going to circle back to the, my very first guest, Jean Luen Yang, um, who grew up Catholic. And he talked about how Asian American churches were kind of coverings for Asian American culture to thrive in the United States because people mm-hmm. won't bother them because they're like, oh, well, they're they're Christians, right? But in fact, they could actually practice a lot of Asian American culture and, you know, holidays and whatever rituals that that were brought from the homeland in ways that, yeah, that they wouldn't be suspicious, right? And so Mm. so there is something interesting about, I think, the place of ethnic churches and where certain cultures can thrive because there isn't kind of a pushback or, you know, and, um, and or silencing even. Have you seen where in multi-ethnic churches where the leadership is predominantly um, minority, does that make a difference at all in kind of the, the outcomes of the churches, outcomes of the the populations? Yeah, I think it definitely uh, makes a difference in terms of the population. Like I, I went to a multi-ethnic church that had a um, Filipino-American pastor and and I, I really appreciated the sermons. I appreciated the the openness, um, but there was definitely pushback, right? Like mm. I think he would get pushed. He would get critiqued if he, um, you know, criticized uh, white supremacy or something like that. Like he would, he he started to lose some of the white members, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and so there is there. It's really hard, I think, to have a true multi ethnic church, and and eventually that actually that church even. Um, it dissipated and mm. not not because of any controversy, nothing like Mars Hill, <laughs> but just that that's that it was really hard to have community when there was there was also like there was also like differences in, in positions on sexuality. It was a very diverse church in lots of different ways. But I think mm. because there's so much polarization in the evangelical world and in Christian world and society, it's really, really hard, I think, to have um, people who feel differently about each other, but then makes it less safe. If you feel like, oh, this person doesn't believe in this, and that actually negates my very center of identity, right? And so mm-hmm. it's really hard, I think, to have to have people who can be, I think, bound by Christian love when there are so many, I think, political things that actually seem to be hateful, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we're in a stage of, you know, um, really kind of a reckoning of you know, what do we believe in and how do we enact Christ's love in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things we, one of the things I take away from the whole Mars Hill story is, um, you know, back to some of the things we were saying earlier is I, I think so much about the people who left disillusioned, you know, mm-hmm. um, their, their marriages ended up failing and falling apart and they struggled to find a home in another church and, um, you know, or people who've described like, I wanted to go back to church, but I walked in the doors of another church and I either started shaking with anxiety from just previous experiences mm. or I felt these, this sort of inward pressure of sort of guilt or shame or, of, of, or anxiety about like, they're going to, they're not going to be right. They're not going to get something right. And I think so the reason for that, like so much of it was because at the heart of Marcel was Mark had this message of we're special, we're unique, we're blessed by God, we've got it all right. If you do what I say, your life's going to work out, you know. And it wasn't a prosperity gospel in the sense of give us your money and God's going to bless you, but it was in the sense of these are the your, you know, 12 rules for life or whatever that are going to mm-hmm. that are going to work perfectly for you. Um and and 
I just keep coming back to this. Like, why are we as Christians so allergic to the message of the cross, which is follow Jesus, AKA follow someone who suffered and died. And that was the path to glory. That was the path to, to goodness. Like human flourishing comes um, when it's, it's full of people who are not in it for themselves, not in it to win, not in it to dominate. And, um, um, and so I think about these, these racial conversations a lot and, um, we've dealt with some of this stuff at the, at the church where I was a pastor, we, we were, we made efforts to, to try and build multi-ethnic bridges and have had some successes with it. And especially since a, a new pastor came in, an African-American pastor who's been amazing. Um, but the degree of sort of reactive vitriol mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. when you just bring it up, it was like, I, I remember preaching a sermon one time on Ephesians two, you know, breaking down the walls of hostility and to me, it was like, well, this is just the in the text, and here's our situation. I, I went into it so naive <laughs> about what was going to happen when you preached about racism. And oh my gosh, I'll just never forget that that couple of days of afterwards of of the reactivity. Um, and then I think it fundamentally it comes back to this whole thing of like we want to win, we want to be told we're right, um, mm-hmm. and we don't want to be put in a position where we're being called to lay down our lives for our friends and neighbors. So, Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of the areas, I, I live in the suburbs and a lot of the suburban churches, it's like, they're really fun, you know? <laughs> the music is fun. Sounds like a rock concert. <laughs> the Sunday school is, you know, so sweet. And everything is about feeling good. That mm-hmm. is what attracts people in the suburbs for sure, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and perhaps everywhere. I don't know. Um, and I think that that has become, I think, church church culture. And you're right. That is so not the kind of um, why why someone becomes a Christian in the first place. I think I was drawn as a young person to the idea of unconditional love, right? And if we're going mm-hmm. to mimic unconditional love, I mean, not out of our own ability, but out of kind of a constant communion with a, a loving God, then yes, that means that we have to give of ourselves and that, that immediately is uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. uncomfortable and painful. And and I get it because I think, it, well, the thing is, it's, it's counter to the American dream, right? And this is where the kind of Christian nationalist agenda, I think, moves in, right? Where... Um, where it's it's about you know achieving a dream it's about you know having a certain um you know degree of comfort and and lifestyle and i think donald trump really <laughs> represented that because he was so wealthy and mm-hmm. and his whole kind of reality show persona was about you know making money and and then he said he was christian <laughs> and then it was like right. everything just made sense i think to a huge swath of people right and and for those of us who like you know what you said believed in more of the sacrificial kind of following of christ is like standing by in horror right mm-hmm. <laughs> like like just aghast and I think to this to this day, I'm still like like not in shock because I'm trying to understand and I'm starting to really understand why Christianity kind of gets mixed up in that. But um, and not Christianity, I think, in terms of capital C Christianity, but a, a, a form of Christianity. Right. Yeah. But it's so painful, I think, for those of us who see that now as the I think the what people think of when they think of Christianity, they think of that rather than rather than what you just said, you know, the kind of beauty of following up you know someone who was who was crucified because they he wanted to you know make a difference in the world you know and and uphold those who are in the margins and those who are not well but sick right and so mm-hmm. i think you know that 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 message now is starting to get lost it's starting to get lost and that's mm-hmm. really painful for me yeah and I, well and i think part of i i think the american dream is a great way to frame it as well because it's a, um, it, it's like a, it's like an imminent eschatology, right? It's like, that's, that's something I can put my hope in and I, and, and it's tangible and it's real and I can, you know, in whatever. Mm-hmm. And so if we put up anything that feels like an obstacle in the way of that, um, you know, you know, I, I'm a big believer in sort of the, the, the Charles Taylor framing of, of living in a secular age and, you know, the limits of our moral imagination and spiritual imagination and all of that. And so 
I think, yeah, I think there's probably something to the degree to which, um, you know, a message that pulls us away from, from that kind of a vision of prosperity taps into a deeper fear about our futures because that's a hope that I believe in <laughs> where I'm not mm. quite so sure about, you know, the sort of the resurrection hope, which is at the heart of the Christian story. Um, because it's the resurrection that makes any, you know, any invitation to die to self um, uh, worth worth pursuing, worth embracing. Um, I mean, that's a, it's a phrase my friend David Zoll says all the time. He says, you know, with every death in Christ, there's a resurrection. And so anything we experience in our lives, it's like, I can die to that. I can let this part of my story, or I can let this preference. I mean, that's the thing that's crazy to me, right? Like when we talk about the culture of our churches and what's difficult to to sort of create hospitality and, and make room for other leaders and all of that. Um, we're often talking about culture issues, expression issues, language, music, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. And it's like, I can't die to myself for, we're not asking you to, to open your wallet even more even necessarily. It's like, can you give up the kind of music you like on a Sunday to, to make room <laughs> for people who are different? And you can't die to yourself for that? Like, no wonder we can't do, build bigger bridges in our, in our culture. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, Christians divide over the craziest things. It's the old cliche about, you know, churches splitting over the carpet color in a new building. It happens. And it's, oh gosh, it's just such a tragedy of missing the point. Yeah. And I think for, gosh, as a person of color in, have, that's gone to multicultural churches, it's like. Yeah, the music is just one indication of so many things, right? Mm -hmm. Like being mistaken for you know the only other Asian around, or all the kind of microaggressions add up to, or or actually, what I usually get is like, oh my gosh, I I had a Chinese uh, international student stay with me. Do you know her? <laughs> or have you met her? Or I think you would have totally gotten along with her. And just this, <laughs> those are those are kind of the positive kind of <laughs> oh framing of just seeing me for my race. Um, and you know, and it's like those things, those divisions, they add up to make you feel like, oh gosh, I just don't belong here, and I'm never going to be loved for who I am. You know, I can mm. never really con truly connect and feel like this is my home. Like those kind of things happen so often. But then, then you have now, like those are are things that I feel like a lot of us are used to Christians of color and women. Um, but then you get into now, it's like, I don't want to hear about like any kind of history where you suffered in this country or people that look like you mm. suffering. Like there's total erasure now and there's total mm. hostility, right? So it's like escalated to a point where it's really hard to kind of overlook you know, those kind of things. It's, it's now it's like, it's high stakes, right? Where, where I feel like, um, yeah, that my very soul or being told that I can't identify as Christian and Asian, like being told that like parts of myself aren't valid. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it feels, it feels very satanic. It does not feel like coming from God. Right. And so I think that, mm -hmm. yeah, that that's where we are in terms of, um, a lot of experiences of, I know my listeners and here on this, on the disruptors and just my friends, and my my family, you know, this this kind of wariness of 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 white Christianity that's that's dominating so many churches right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just want you know as I've wondered about it, and and I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day. He's kind of a mentor of mine. He's ninety years old, been a part of the church forever, and um, uh. You know, we were we were talking about this. We were talking about some of the, these leadership things, and I was like, "So what? Like, what do you think? Uh, what do, what do we do? You know, like, where do we? How do you know? How do we? What do we make of all of this stuff?" And um, you know, and his response is, "You know, we'll just some things only come out by prayer." Um, and and I think there's an element it, there's an element of me that I hear that and I want to sort of react and be cynical and say like, oh yeah, okay, the Sunday school answer, you know, prayer, right? <laughs> thoughts um, and prayers. The thoughts and prayers. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, I and, and that was my reaction in the moment. And I, I, but I found myself kind of haunted by it and coming back to, you know, what you just said about like, it feels satanic. Well, it feels satanic because it is satanic, you know? Mm. Um, these divisions are satanic, be they, they are satanic. Um, and, the the message of of 
the idea that the gospel was supposed to is supposed to be capable of building racial or, or of uh, bridging racial and ethnic divide like that's not an innovation of you know the 21st century um that's that's in the message of Jesus there's a reason he told a story about a samaritan um it, that story was offensive to his his listeners um mm. how many times does paul talk about it in his letters um this is at the heart of the gospel message is that it should be building these, these kinds of bridges. And so, you know, I think when we're putting up walls um, and, and creating resistance to it at, at any level, um, you know, the confrontation really needs to come back to, hey, like, you know, it's almost like you should say to, we should say to those who, who want to resist that, hey, just preach the gospel. By the way, the gospel message is that it builds, <laughs> builds bridges between, between people who, people groups who normally have hostility and who other one another and, and alienate one another. And um, yeah, it's heartbreaking that it, you know, it's so hard to, it's so, so hard to, to be heard when you say something so basic. Yeah, and I think that for me, it's also a decentering of power, decentering mm-hmm. of privilege. And I think that that having, um, yeah, that it's you know that yes, there's hostility, but sometimes there's hostility, you know, that it, plus power, right? <laughs> In terms right. of who has the the power to be able to kind of enact hostility that actually will exclude people from 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 churches and from places that that they should be welcome at and and mm. how about like recentering it on yeah like uh, uh, uh ethnic churches where where they can have spaces where they can grow and and i think that having those kind of conversations and and being i think being really humble <laughs> being really humble and open and mm. listening i think that that's those are such basics but i find that People are not doing that in the church, you know, and people are not doing that in the communities that are supposed supposedly Christian. And so I think that I think that Mars Hill is a great start in kind of exposing what some of these um, these risks are right and these kind of um deep sins and what that the shape of that obviously it's an extreme version but i think the fact that it's resonated with so many people that it it definitely touches upon a lot of what is going on not just in the church but in i think our society in terms of you Mm -hmm. know kind of this again kind of a christian nationalism that we are we are in the heart of right now. So I always ask guests, uh, what are you listening to, watching or reading that is disruptive? I mean, the Mars Hill podcast is very disruptive, I think, in a in a very fruitful way. Are there are there other things that that you have come across that is disruptive? Hmm. Um, I'm in the middle right now of the new podcast from Serial about um, this uh this th- there was a hoax it, I, I, the name of it i think is the trojan horse affair it it's about a hoax about a an islamic conspiracy to sort of uh undermine education in great britain and it had wide reaching effects and all of this and at the heart of it was this letter that was a fraud about this conspiracy theory and you know it's a, it's a crazy story because this letter comes out launches these investigations, all these people lose their jobs and, you know, becomes apparent very quickly in the podcast, like, well, the letter's fake. Like, and it's, people knew the letter was fake and they didn't care. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot to it about sort of racial assumptions and sort of post 9-11, you know, conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. su- suspicion of Muslims, that sort of thing that, I, that I've really found fascinating as I've listened to, the, listened to that. guys covered a lot there Nancy I'm interested you know having listened to the rest of the season what kind of sets this interview apart at least in your mind talking to Mike Hosper as someone who has investigated and told the story of you know Mars Hill which um, although the podcast itself didn't necessarily deal with race so much it really was about I guess toxic masculinity and toxicity, you know, the the kind of lures and pitfalls, right? And I think mm-hmm. that in this interview, I was really interested because I think the entire season of all the um, people of color that I got to speak to, you know, the elephant in the room really was um, and is kind of 
white evangelicalism, right? Yeah. And to kind of name it with Mike uh, was risky, I think, in a lot of ways, <laughs> because I think we don't, um, you know, if you're ensconced in evangelicalism, people don't like to talk about race at all mm. and to and to name how evangelicalism has um, become, I think, uh, part of integrated with whiteness and with yeah. patriarchy and to and I think because all the guests throughout the whole season, that was what they were defining themselves against. Right. Yeah. So whiteness it's like, how am I? Middle. <laughs> Yeah, who am I? Well, because that is, I think, the default yeah. um, culture that evangelicalism has become, especially in right. the public eye with with kind of the rise of Donald Trump and all the supporters. The explicit and, right and nationalism. That's right. That's right. And I think that, you know, I mean, me coming out of, you know, a conservative university, I know that like there's people who probably don't want me to talk about this. Right. But there are also a lot of people who recognize it and need it to be named because mm -hmm. I think a lot of a lot of people are suffering. Right. And also mm -hmm. having a lot of tension and questions about how, who am I as a Christian, um, if not, you know, someone who. Uh, aligns with the uh, one single party who claims to, you know, be the party of Christianity when yeah. there are so many parts of that, that um, morality that doesn't fit with who I think Christ's, you know, mission and calling for me is. Right. So that's, um, it's a really hard place and tension to be in. And I think I, I appreciate it being able to talk to Mike and and kind of deconstruct with Mike what that means and from and hear his perspective, right? And also I think challenging him as well and thinking about because yeah. he talked about building bridges and building bridges also assumes that there's an equivalency, right? right. But I, I believe that there is a power differential, right? When it comes to who gets to speak for Christians today and who has to speak in kind of whispered corners or or speak out, but then be challenged in ways that you're not Christian because you're talking about race. It's like they, they call it wokeism or call it, you know, CRT, whatever the words that have been labeled all the kind of challenges to uh, dominant uh, Christianity that has uh, marginalized voices of color mm. and, you know, all the kind of groups that that um, are trying to say, hey, you know, we don't fit in. We we are constantly silenced and and yet, you know, having this tension. And I think that, you know, that all those and all the hurt that comes with that. Right. And I think that yeah. all the guests um, I've been inspired by all the guests who continue to want to emulate Christ's love, like Minjin Lee saying, you know, she's team love. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think and also I think Jean Luan Yang talking about the, the history of Christianity not being white, completely white. Right. But that it has um, lots of um, big names and origins that um, are rooted in people of color and coming from the Middle East. And I think that, you know, having this decentered, I think that's what the season has been decentering right. um, mainstream um, white Christianity, evangelicalism, and recentering um, voices on the margins, just like Jesus did. And I think, you know, in some ways, white evangelicalism needs that stretching in some ways. Um, mm. The the scholars of color, the church people of color, they're doing it all the time naturally because, you know, whiteness being centered, that's not our lived experience. We always have to stretch to accommodate that. And then um, I remember when I went to um, church in the Midwest during grad school and I would always point out to people, oh, you do that because you're white. And they would be like, no, I do that because, you know, this is like how we always do it. And I'm like, I know. And it's because you've always been white. <laughs> and, and it was really interesting. for, And I'm so thankful to many of those friends for st still staying friends with me and learning from me challenging them and asking them to think, is this a Christian thing or is this a white thing? Right. And um and I know that for many of the other interviewees, like I think of um, uh, Angry Asian Man and, uh, you know, the Rise book and uh, Jeff Yang saying, um, hey, you know, we think about how culture intersects with Christianity and which parts 
are from Jesus and which parts are from like our love of boba or whatever, you know? But I think, you know, it's a it's a new thing for a lot of white Christians to have to grapple with that. I mean, I even feel kind of <laughs> strange saying that <laughs> we're we're ending this the season, you know, on uh, a white dude explaining white Christianity <laughs> or something. Yeah. That this is this is I mean, this is again, I think not and me, you know, also I think speaking up and trying to um center the the kind of season that I've been doing and thinking about how how do we how do we coexist how do we how do we become one in Christ truly i mean oh. we can't be the same that isn't possible right. um and it's not desirable nope. you know that's not what you know in the bible we are hands we are feet we are eyes we are ears we are all these things and to mm -hmm. come together um perhaps not always harmoniously but i think that to understand that we are one body with different purposes, with different perspectives, that is the beauty of being Christian, right? Mm -hmm. I love hearing from people who are different, but at the same time, you know, being at Biola, I have felt connections and safety with people who are different than myself, knowing that we will love one another, even if we disagree. Yeah. Um, and this isn't always so. I I don't always feel safe with everyone, but I, I, I do feel safe with, for example, people of color who are different um, backgrounds than I, that we have, we try to, you know, talk about our shared love, but also our shared marginality. And that has been so beautiful. And I think that this season has been really that, just listening and hearing and discussing how we can be better in the body um, mm -hmm. even as we are celebrating our differences and also a mourning, I think, some of how the pain that comes with having that, that distinctiveness and the diversity that doesn't always, isn't always celebrated in every circle. So I think we've done all of that. <laughs> I'm proud. I'm proud that we were able to do that. We mix our colors, let me cover pop songs in a bottle, how we battle all the barriers, right? Some drink, some color their hair every night. Some try to stand out, some try to act white. Found music, but I've never been the stereotype. New eyes break old lies. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. The Disruptors is hosted by me, Nancy Wong Yoon. You can follow me at Nancy W-Y-U-E-N. Our theme song is New Eyes by Jason Chu. Our executive producers are Helen Lee and Andrew Bronson. Produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Myla Kim. <laughs>